Amen. Well, grab your Bible and let's turn back to uh, the book of Philippians. And um, because of the baptism and other things, um, uh, we'll try to end a little bit early here because I have to go um, tend to some things here. So, Okay, uh, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to get close to the end of the chapter. We might even get to the end of the chapter today, but uh, let's just remind ourselves of where we've been and then we'll, we'll jump back in here. Um, this whole section started in, in Philippians chapter 3 with with Paul recounting uh, sort of his, his biography. Uh, this was not any uh, slouch of a teacher. Um, if the Apostle Paul had walked into the room before his conversion, um, he would have been offered uh, seats of prominence in the synagogue. Uh, he would have been sought after as a well-known Pharisee, uh, teacher, expert in the law. And, um, and yet, as, as, as we look at chapter 3, and he begins to recount uh, who he was, uh, his uh, heritage, as you will. In verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee, an expert in the law. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Of the church. And as to righteousness, which is found in the law, he was found blameless. So if, if there was an Israelite above all Israelites, um, he was certainly in that category. And, and that's what makes what he's about to say so compelling, because... You can imagine that was his life, right? That, that was what he did. That's who he was. It was his identity. It was his trust. It was his confidence. He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's a, a wonderful gospel section where Paul says, but something happened in my life where I recognized that all of my righteousness was as filthy rags that it didn't matter what seed I got in the synagogue. It didn't know how well I knew the Torah or followed it. It didn't matter whether I was schooled under one of the most famous rabbis in Judaism. It, none of those things mattered because at the end of the day, his righteousness accounted for nothing in the sight of God. And you remember that day, uh, we read it in the book of Acts, and then he recounts it again in uh, one of his epistles where God met him on the road and uh, showed him the gospel. And he says, now that I've come to know the gospel, I think of all those things that I've made my life about, all those things that were my confidence and my hope, all those things that were important to me, and he says, those were loss. Those were actually, uh, the, the word means a liability. It was something that actually um, moved me away from Christ instead of moved me toward him. And he says it again. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss. And even stronger, he counts them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The righteousness that he presents here is not a righteousness that we earn, not a righteousness that we can do things for or a religious righteousness of some uh, 
uh, fashion. Um, but it's a righteousness, as the text says, that comes from God on the basis of faith. It, it's, it's God's very own righteousness credited to the account of the believer through the person that trusts in Jesus. And Paul says that's what it's all about. And then last time we looked at this section, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have I already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Do you remember from last time? What is he talking about there? Do you remember? Yes, to know Christ perfectly. And, and what is he saying about knowing Christ perfectly there? Yeah, he hasn't obtained it yet. You, you might think with, with the previous gospel description there, you know, he's given up all to gain Christ, to be found in him, having a righteousness not his own. Uh, he's in Christ, Christ is in him. And then he says, but you know what? It, this, this process isn't complete yet. I've not gotten to the place where I have fully known Christ. I've not become perfect, he says. I've not become perfect before the Lord, perfectly mature, perfectly like Jesus. But he says then, but I press on. And he says it again in 14, I press on toward the goal, the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we talked about uh, the doctrine of progressive sanctification last time, that, that um, we, don't, we don't come to Christ and then you know, God just works in, inside of us to make us perfectly look like Jesus automatically. Um, that it's, it's a progressive growth. It's a progressive walk. Uh, one day we will look just like Jesus and we will know him perfectly. But until then, it, it's a progressive work. Uh, like we read back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that we work out our salvation, or, or more accurately, we work out our sanctification with fear and trembling, knowing, verse 13, that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says back in chapter 3, verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, then he says this, and this is one of those things where you go, hmm? verse 15, Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, and if, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Now, look back at the text, verse 12, and he says, Not that I have already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, but I press on. And then in verse 15 he says, Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude. What happened? Between verse 12 and verse 15, he finished his sanctification, right? Is that what happened? He attained perfection in those three verses. Okay, so why does he say, Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude? He might be, but there's there's really nothing in the context to tip us that way. It's good thought. He's being sarcastic. Good job, Rick. Good job. Um, okay, here's here's the deal, and this is one of those things where you, you have to you have to kind of put yourself in Paul's sandals here for a minute. Um, he's writing to the Philippians, right? He's writing to this church, and um, and for the most part, they're a good church, right? And, and he's he's addressed some. Uh, 
problems along the way, and he's talked about um, them being bold and confident in the gospel and has talked about his testimony and how that was an encouragement to them. But there were some people, We talk, I, I mentioned this last time, there were some people running around that were like holiness doctrine people. You know what I mean by that? They were, West, they were the ancient Wesleyans. They were walking around saying, well, we think there's no more work God needs to do. That, that we've attained a standard of, of maturity or perfection. And, um, and they were walking around uh, very pridefully, looking down their noses at other people saying, well, maybe one day you guys could be like us too. So one of the, one of the problems that, that Paul's trying to address in the Philippian church is dealing with this, this holiness perfectionism that's going on, that there's a group of people that think, I'm done growing. And so Paul, with tongue in cheek, you're, you're absolutely right, Rick, says this, let us therefore as many are perfect, elbow, elbow, kind of thing, have this attitude. So he, he's, He's playing around with these guys. He's being sarcastic with them. And he's saying, well, you guys think you're perfect, but you still need to have this attitude. And what's the attitude? We'll look back up at the text. Not that we've already obtained it or have become perfect, but we press on. That's the attitude you need to have. So even if you think you're perfect, he says, that's fine. You still need to press on. You still need to mature. You still need to grow. Um, and just, just a footnote on that. Um, <laughs> Bible study is a lot of fun because sometimes you, you, you read things and you go, okay, it means this, and then the next verse you go, well, this doesn't go with that, and you've got to kind of figure it out, and, and it, that's part of the, uh, the challenge of Bible study there. But one of the things, one of the things you have to remember is, is that um, uh, there, there is humor in the Bible. There is sarcasm in the Bible. There is um, uh, allusion in the Bible. They're all Just like in any other literature, there are those things. And, and sometimes we get so... Literal and what we're trying to do, we, we forget that you know this is a guy writing a letter. You know, I mean, have you joked with your friends this week? You know, have, have you have you done that? So he says, "Let us therefore, as many are perfect, some of you guys have this attitude, and if anything, and if any, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you." And that's interesting, also, because what he he's like challenging them. He, he's challenging them in a sort of indirect way you know he's not rebuking them but he's saying you know what if you're not convinced i'm confident god will convince you in time what does that remind us of by the way waiting on god let me let me set it up a little a little bit better for you um are there any people in your family, in your life, in your church, in your workplace who um, have wrong doctrine and, and challenging them? Is there a place to challenge them? Sure there is. Is there a place to help them? Sure there is. But, but no, notice Paul's tact here. And this isn't always his tact. I mean, sometimes he just rebukes them and calls them on the carpet. But here he says, you know what? You still disagree with me? That's okay. God will change your mind. And that's a really, really good reminder, isn't it? God is the one that, that ultimately works in, uh, in these situations. So as many are perfect, says, let us have this attitude, the attitude that we should press on to maturity, that, that the Christian life is called a walk, not a rest. 
we're going somewhere, we're doing something, we're, we're, there's, a, there's a finish line, there's a prize, there's a direction. We're not sitting around resting. And then he says this, let us keep living by the same standard. Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Um, what do you think about that? What does that have to do with anything? And, and this is the part where you offer your thoughts. It does say retain the standard, um, like in First uh, Thessalonians chapter one or First Timothy chapter one, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, kind of sounds like that. Sounds like that. What's that? It doesn't change over time, right? But but what you, you guys are thinking of standard like the gospel? What's he What's he talking about here? Keep living by the same standard of, of what? Isn't that what he's talking about? He's talking about growing and changing. We're maturing in Christ. We haven't obtained it yet. We've not become perfect. But we press on to grow and change to be like Jesus. That, that's what we're doing. We're, we're walking with Christ. We're growing to get to know him. And, and, he, and okay, now, now you've got to put this all together now. There are these guys that think we've arrived. So what are they doing? What are they doing? Sitting. sitting. They're doing nothing. Now, now here, here's, here's what's in the white space of what Paul is getting at here, I think. When you stop making an effort to change, what happens? You regress. You regress. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, why would he say, well, um, you know, you need, to, you need to have the attitude that I've just presented, and if you still don't like what I'm saying, God's going to reveal it to you, but you still need to work at this. You still need to press on. You need to, you need to keep um, pressing on at the same standard to which you have obtained, because what he's saying is, when you, when you get to the place where you say, well, I don't need to work on this anymore. You know, I, I don't need to, to get up in the morning and pursue Christ. I don't need to do that anymore because I'm content with my spiritual uh, level of accomplishment. What happens? You begin to regress. And I guarantee you what, what he's saying here is you guys are going the wrong way. You know, that, that brings up a whole thought, and this, this could be a whole message, but... What do you think about mature believers who stop growing? What, what do you think about uh, the man or the woman that's walked with Christ for a lot of years and they get to the place where they say, you know what, I'm just content with where I'm at. I've, I've read my Bible, I've had seasons of that, and I, I, don't, I, I, know, I know it, I know what it says, you know, I, I you know, I have seasons of solid prayer. I had uh, times in my life of significant ministry, but, yeah, I've come connected. And they put it in spiritual cruise control. Now, that, that's not quite the same as what he's talking about here, right? You understand he's talking about these guys that are they're the Wesleyan holiness guys that think that, you know, they have plateaued. 
But it raises an interesting question. What do you think of mature Christians that say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to be content with where I'm at. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm losing, you know, I've got Alzheimer's and I can't remember and, and I, so I can't minister. I'm, I'm not talking about physical limitations. I'm just saying they think there is a retirement from sanctification. What do you think about that, Rich? They are being deceived. Right. Yeah. 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 You guys understand when that happens, when when someone says, you know, I don't, I don't need to. And I don't know that they would actually ever say that. I mean, some people would. But, I mean, I'm just talking about you look around and you go, that person's walked with God for a long time, and worship isn't so important, reading isn't so important, praying isn't so important, ministry isn't so important. Other things that have no spiritual value are more important. And you go, what happened? Uh, well, that, that could be. Here, Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you guys are, are are hitting on good things because when that happens, something has terribly gone wrong. You know, God God rigs the Christian life so that the more we grow to know him, the more we realize we need him, right? That, that, you would you agree with me on that? I mean, that's, that's just how it is. I mean, um, uh, I, I mentioned this to someone the other day. Uh, we just finished uh, Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis always has a little something in there that's worth taking away. And uh, for me, in reading, in reading Prince Caspian, it's been probably 20, 25 years since I read Prince Caspian, um, He's uh, Aslan, who's like Jesus, is talking to Lucy, um, and uh, and he says, uh, Lucy says to Aslan, um, Aslan, have you gotten bigger? And he says, No, but you have gotten bigger, and as you grow, I will become bigger too. And that's true, because the more we grow in Christ, the more we realize how great Christ is, and we realize how much more we need Him. So when, when somebody plateaus spiritually and, and they, they are tempted to go into spiritual retirement, uh, you think so, something has really, some, some significant wrench has gotten into the gears because normal Christianity is, if I'm walking with God, I'm also growing and seeing how much I need Him. And that, that drives me closer to him. It doesn't drive me away from him. So. I would say so, yeah. 
Right. So if, if you know what your sensor's from my hand, but you are at risk after you're on the path of sanctification, that's the circular that I was talking about. It seems that we have, we have a, a, a circular formula going on in there. It's an error message. <laughs> an error message. <laughs> Maybe you better go back and review your, right. your justification in the first right. place. Yeah, and you guys understand we don't need to get into a big um, bunny trail here. Maybe another time it would be good. But but it, p- picture picture a coin. You have heads and tails, right? Heads and tails. And on one side of that coin is no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. My Father has given them to me. He's greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand, right? That, that, that's on one side. You know, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Those whom he... he um, uh, for new, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he um, uh, predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. The, the, the golden chain there, Romans 8. So on one side of the coin is, is this doctrine that says you cannot lose your salvation. And it depends on the faithfulness and promises of God. And he says, I'm not going to let you go, period. And then if you flip the coin over, you read verses like this, um, uh, like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, or Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, that say, um, if you continue in the faith, once for all established, you know, unless you believed in vain, um, you, you read these, these threats of Scripture that say, you've got to keep believing. You have to endure in your faith. And you say, well, how, how do you reconcile that? Well, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Eternal security says if you're really a Christian, you can't lose that, that salvation. You can't lose it. And because of that, if you flip the coin over, God will see to it that you continue to believe, that you continue to endure. Not, not because you know it's up to us, but because God is faithful to make us to do that. But you'll come to passages... Some passages look at one side of the coin and they'll talk about enduring in the faith and continuing to believe. And then you'll see other passages where the coin is flipped over and you're looking at it from God's point of view where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So, so that, that brief summary comes back to Max's questions, which is if you're, if you're seeing a veering off from the faith, and we're not talking about people that abandon the faith necessarily. We're just, we're talking about people who, who seem to say, you know what, I've gotten to a place where I, I don't want to try anymore. But I, I think going back and, you know, if, if it's significant, yeah. You know, think about their conversion, if that's true or not. So, Okay, well, that, that, was, that was just something for free there to think about. Mature believers who stop growing. And I would suggest to you that that, that, is, um, that, that is like finding a malignant tumor in the Christian life. That, that, that is a, a significant problem that needs to be taken seriously until it's uh, until we figure out what uh, what's going on there. But we must move on. Chapter three, verse seventeen. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And again, we, we ask the question: Well, what's the pattern, right? What what is the pattern that he's talking here, talking about here? What's the pattern? His 
Yes, his example of what? Of pressing on. Yeah, that's still in the context, right? This this is where we got to keep reading, reading ahead with what he's just talked about in mind. Yeah, he's saying... Okay, you got this church. You imagine this, this church is probably a little bit confused because you've got people running around saying, "No, no, no! You're going to reach a, a point where you plateau and you're you're teleon, you're mature, you're complete, and and you don't need to do anything else." And then you got other people saying, "No, no, no! You need to press on. You need to mature. That this is a process, and you, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling." So you may you may have some disillusioned Philippians here, and Paul says. Brothers, I want you to follow my example, not because he's the best Christian that's ever been, but because what he's just taught them is the truth. He says, follow my example and also observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So he's saying, there are other people in your church that aren't in this perfectionism movement who are saying, press on, mature, grow. And and, and he says to them, you want to follow guys like that. Remember back in uh, chapter 2, when he was talking about the importance of godly examples, guys like Epaphroditus and, and Timothy, remember that? And, and how we talked about it's important that we have people in our life that we say, that's what Christianity looks like and that's what I need to pursue. Uh, and again, not, not holding up them up on a pedestal, but just so we can see what it really looks like uh, lived out. The pattern is those who press on. The guys that press on to maturity, that press on to godliness, to lay hold of... Uh, the prize, as Paul talks about it in verse 12 and verse 14. And then we, we get this um, really odd digression because he's talking about moving forward. He's talking about pressing on. He's corrected some of the guys that don't have it quite right. And as he's thinking about people in the church, you can see him you know, thinking about these these people, he's been there. He was there when, um, remember, he met the group of ladies when he went through Philippi. There was no church, there was no established church. There were just some some godly ladies that would go down to the river and they would pray and have a little worship service. And that's that's where Paul met them before they even had any sort of organized church. And as so often the case, you can see Paul's love for these people. You can see his concern and care for them. Uh, as he talks about this, um, people that are walking the wrong way. He says, for many walk. And, of course, that's metaphorical. Everybody, you know, Many people live, right? But of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. And we say, what on earth happened, right? What what happened that there were people sitting under good doctrine, people that had the discipleship of the Apostle Paul himself, other godly people like Timothy and Paphroditus, and there are some people who stray, and they end up walking in the wrong direction. And, and the implication of how he sets this up is, is not that, hey, I heard you guys got some pagans in Philippi. I mean, that's not what he's saying. The, the implication is there were some people in your church, maybe still in the church, and instead of walking toward Christ, they're walking away from him. They're walking the wrong direction. Just a, maybe a pastoral footnote here is in order. Um, one of the saddest things that we have to face as Christians 
is when people turn away from Christ after once professing to follow him. Right? Uh, some of you have, have adult children that, that that's happened. Some of you have uh, maybe former spouses or coworkers. Um, maybe you have other family that you're, maybe you're going to see that family this week. And it's very important um, that we understand why that happens. Um, and Paul doesn't Paul doesn't water down the significance of that. Um, I would suspect that in Hood County, we have a lot of people that are familiar with Christ, familiar with the Scriptures, familiar with the church, but they are walking the wrong direction. And the last thing in the world that they think is that they are actually enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it may be, it may be in our country that the most dangerous threat is not Islam or is some, you know, the Mormon movement or something like that. The most dangerous threat is a form of Christianity that is pushing out orthodoxy and pushing out the gospel where people think they're Christians and they're not. Yes, sir. And that's where we're going to go because I'm going to show you how this happens in the next verse. But yeah, this is, this is a warning because everything we're going to talk about, you're going to go, yeah, I can relate to that. So let's, let's unpack those, those, uh, qualities here together. I'll just put them up on the screen. I think they're already in your, in your notes there. Uh, first of all, Whatever these people are doing, their end is destruction. There is, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, a, a narrow road that leads to what? To life. And there is a broad road that leads to... And there are all sorts of people that find that. There's a narrow road that leads to life. There are few who find it. There's a broad road that leads to destruction. And there are many who find it. I mean, just, just think about that for a minute. I'm just... If if uh, if we're going to believe Jesus, and we should, there are a lot more people going to hell than there are going to heaven. There are few that find it, according to Jesus. So it it is no small thing to depart from the cross of Christ. It is no small thing to walk in the wrong direction, becoming an enemy of Christ. Now now you'd expect the next verse to say. They're out there persecuting the church. They're atheists. They're Buddhists. They're, you'd think that they, they went off the deep end. And that's where I think Rich's comment is so helpful. This, this is, these are garden variety struggles here that led them to become an enemy of Christ. So, so let's look at the description here. Their end is destruction, and that, that just means uh, that they're, they're not Christians. They're not going to go to heaven. Their God is their appetite. 
What is that? Does that you read that and you go, what? I mean, when, when someone says they're an enemy of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, don't you expect some big, huge sin to come next, right? They're murderers. They're acts, right? You expect that. He says, these guys love food too much. Yeah, it, it literally is whose God is their belly. That's literally what it says. And, and obviously being used metaphorically there. Um. What does Exodus uh, 23 say? You should know that. You don't need to look it up. You should know that. I'll, I'll set it up for you. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And you're thinking, uh, you, and then the next one, you, not, you should not make for yourself an idol or uh, any likeness of what has been heaven above or on the earth beneath or... You, know, you shall not worship them or serve them. Okay, you, you got it. The first two commandments, no gods and no idols. And you think, huh, I'm off the hook on that one. I'm doing, you know, you, my Ten Commandment checklist. How am I doing today, right? You know, no stealing, no lying. Didn't, definitely didn't make any gods. And this is where the Bible really gets in our kitchen here because a god, according to Scripture, does not have to be an immaterial deity that you represent in statues and and give sacrifices to. I mean, I mean stuff that Jack and Susie are going to see in Cambodia. Um, not not it's not all like that. In fact, in Ezekiel 14, we don't have time to look there. Ezekiel's hanging out in his house, and the elders of Israel are coming down the hill to the prophet's house. And as they're walking down the hill, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and uh, and Eze- and God says to Ezekiel, um, uh, there's some guys coming to your house, and let me tell you about them. Okay. They have set up idols in their hearts. And they set right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. And these are the elders of Israel. They're leading the people into idolatry. And the point of Ezekiel 14 is to see that an idol or a false god does not have to be some deity. It doesn't have to be some statue. It doesn't have to be uh, Buddha. It doesn't have to be... um, Mary, it it doesn't have to be some deity. It can be immaterial. Have you ever thought that loving food too much might compete with your love for God? That's what he's saying. That is a God, little g. And, And as you know, you've heard me teach on these things before. Um, a god, little g, an idol, is anything that replaces God in your life. It's anything. It can be anything. It can be your kids. It can be your marriage. It can be uh, watching the cowboys. It, it can be a sport. It can be golf. It can be money. It can be how you look. It can be having people happy with you. It can be having someone who understands you. It can be all sorts of things. Anything well, anything and everything compete with God. That's the point of Romans chapter 1, is that we as sinful human beings replace God. We, we so, so don't want to deal with Him that we push away. Uh, Romans 1 says we suppress the truth, and then we look at God's creation and we say, what else can I worship instead of Him? And I want you to see that something that we can all... Re- I mean, this is Thanksgiving week. I mean, I mean, did you see how God set this up? This isn't even fair. Right? 
and God isn't against Thanksgiving, but, but you see how subtle that is, that you can get to the point where something as simple as food becomes more than God, becomes more important than God. There's a second thing we see here. It says, whose glory is their shame. Turn back uh, for a moment to Romans 1. I just alluded to this, but I want you to see I want you to see a description of what he's talking about. What does it mean that they glory in their own shame? Now, as you're turning there, what is shame? Shame is, shame is the, the bad feeling I get when people think ill of me because of something wrong in my life. Shame is that bad feeling I get when I realize that people know the bad thing that I've done. Okay? That's shame. And so so you know Romans 1, right? Romans 1 is people reject God and they kind of go down this this snowball of depravity. Um, And he gives this description in verse 29. They're, They're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Uh, so, so these are these are these are people that are just into all any and all sorts of sin. But that's not where depravity ends. Depravity doesn't end as is you're just really bad. That's not where depravity goes. As we continue to reject our Creator and, and refuse to submit to the gospel, what else happens? Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that's an interesting topic. Unbelievers know in a general way God's ordinance is His law. Why? Well, the next chapter tells us because they have the law written on their hearts and their consciences. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice the things that they are practicing are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but what do they do? They give hearty approval to those who practice them. So instead of being, instead of feeling shame and having that be an encouragement to turn away from the wrong thing, they revel in their shame. It's their glory. They say, this is who I am, and you have to accept it. This is who I am. And look at all those people over there, and they're wonderful people too. They, they, they glory, they, they revel in the things that they should be ashamed of. You see that? And that's what happens as you, as you begin to go the wrong direction. Things that should bother you don't. Things that should condemn you don't. Things you should be convicted about no longer. Uh, the Bible describes that as a seared conscience. And as you go down that road, before you know it, you're getting all excited about all the things that Jesus died for. So their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. Look at the last one. And it says, who set their minds on earthly things. I would suggest to you that this is where it started. The attraction of the world. The the attraction of of everything that we have. Um, The Bible often warns us of these things. Matthew 6, verses 19 and following. You don't need to turn there. You you know the verses. Jesus says... um, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Um, what what's Jesus saying there? What's the warning? Why should we store up treasures in heaven and be careful about treasures on earth? Well, why should we do that? The next verse, verse 21, says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see that? Your heart follows your treasure. And whatever these guys had gotten into, Paul puts his finger on the issue and he says, they set their minds on the wrong things. They, they put their treasure in the wrong place. And that's not very hard to do. Um, do you remember the, um, the parable of the sower and the soils in Matthew 13? One of them, it's, it's the one that springs up and then the, the, um, uh, well, it's the um, the vines. The weeds come up and choke it, right? And and he says, yeah, it's it, what, what does that represent? That's the person who initially hears the gospel, says, yeah, I think I want to follow that, and then the cares of the world, and what else? The deceitfulness. Do you guys not know this? The the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world. The word. And uh, you just heard Terry talk about this a few weeks ago, 1 John 2.15, and you know it too. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I would suggest to you that's probably where it started with these folks. Something in the world captured their affection, and they began to give themselves over to it. Maybe it was food, their appetite, maybe that was just part of the package, and as they gave themselves over to that thing, they begin to set their minds on that. Now, now this thing is becoming more important. The, the, this this part of the world, this part of creation, this competing God, and they're setting their minds on earthly things. They're getting too involved here. They're forgetting that they claim to belong to another. And before they know it, they go down that slippery slippery slope. They're enslaved to their appetite. They begin to glory in their sin. Their minds are firmly fixed, not on Christ, but on the earthly things. And Paul says, they're going the wrong direction, and now they're enemies. Um, can you relate to those things? I'm sorry, the attraction to God's creation, what? Sure. Yeah, attraction to God. What he said is, it, it doesn't mean that attraction to God's creation can be a God, sure. You, you can love the painting more than the artist, right? You can love the house more than the guy that built it. You, you, you know, that, that's, that's what we do. I mean, it, the, the argument of Romans 1 is we take the good things God made for us and then we replace the God that made them. I feel like I've said this probably a dozen times in the last two months, so if you're sick of hearing this quote, 
write me an email about it. But uh, David David Pallison uh, captured it really well in an article he did in the Journal of Biblical Counseling um, that we tend to turn God's gifts into gods. And he says that's not good because they make good gifts but bad gods. I was talking to a family member last night on the phone, and um, my thought was, this is a person who has grabbed on to something as what life is all about, and it is failing them. And as that thing that they are worshiping, that thing that they are driving, that, that thing that they love supremely, as that is crumbling on the ground, guess what's happening to them? They're crumbling on the ground too. Uh, and they need to find the rock, the one who doesn't fail us. Okay, well, I need to, I need to stop because of the procedure this morning, so put a comment in your notes there. We'll come back and we'll finish... Uh, chapter 3 next time, but um, let's take that sobering warning and uh, watch our hearts with all diligence uh, that we would not be led astray uh, in the way that these folks were.